people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear you, see you, believe your word, Lord, and understand your word, especially today, Lord. God, I, I pray that you would keep me from teaching error, and I pray that you would keep your people from believing a lie. I thank you and I glorify you for this doctrine and for these doctrines. They have absolutely revolutionized my life because you've opened my eyes to them. And I pray that you would do the same for these people here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to say good morning to you. Praise God for the rain. Um, Welcome you as we continue studying through the doctrines of grace as we've been doing this entire summer. And I do pray that you've been challenged. Um, I do pray that as you've been hearing these different teachings, questions are coming up in your mind and they should. If there are no questions in your mind, then you're not thinking (laughs) Uh, seriously because you should have a million questions and it should propel you to go and find out these things for yourself. I know that our traditions have been challenged as we've been going through the study of the doctrines of grace. My traditions have been challenged, but I hope that you see as we've been studying through these things that they're completely biblical. I pray that you're not just taking our word for it, but that you are going and finding these things out for yourself. Do your part. Amen. So that you can have a firm, firm grip on God's word, God's truth. The last time that we were together, we talked about unconditional election. And we looked at the objection that Paul anticipated in Romans chapter 9, which he said in defense of the doctrine of unconditional election that he was teaching. And the objection was this, Romans 9, 14, as it is up there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We learn that only Reformed theology, only covenant theology or Calvinism, all of which are synonyms of the same word or the same teaching, face this kind of objection, that God is unjust. But why would this objection come up? Because Paul was teaching this, that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, that this is a divine work. By the good will, pleasure and prerogative of our sovereign Lord of the universe. And let me just say, as I pause on that sentence, if you've not been here and you're showing up today for for this lesson, please go get the last five or six lessons, because you're going to hear today's lesson and say, this guy's out of his mind. Which I'm not. We saw that this doctrine of unconditional election is not bad news. But it's just the opposite. It's good news. Why? We saw that no sinner is outside of the reach of God, that we are in no position to say that we are too far gone or that we have done too much for God to save us. No, it is God's job, God's will, God's choice on whom he elects, not us. We also learned that this is good news because it gives all the glory to God. Everywhere we turn in this doctrine of unconditional election and everywhere that we turn within Reformed theology, we see God. We see it as God who elects, it's God who saves, it's God who sanctifies, justifies, glorifies. We find our joy in this great God. That's why you and I were created to give God glory. And in this doctrine, God gets the glory. 
And we also learned this is good news because this truth is rooted in eternity past. This choice of you was made by God before the world began. This truth was written down and your name, just like your names were written down in the Lamb's book of life, never to be blotted out, never to be changed because God from eternity past has loved you as his own. We also learned that in this choice of God giving grace and God giving justice, God is still righteous. He's not unjust to some. They get mercy to others. They get justice. No one gets injustice. Finally, we saw how we can know that we are elect. And we saw that it's first displayed in what God does in us, changing our hearts, uh, our minds and all those other things in Ezekiel chapter 36. And then we also saw that we turn from sin. It's a constant turning from sin. You can stumble in sin. You can fall in sin. You can commit a terrible sin, but not fall ultimately or finally in sin, meaning in your life apart from God because you loved your sin. If you belong to God and you are elect of God, you will always turn back to God because you belong to him. You will have a love and a desire and a passion for God and his glory in your life. Fruit from the Holy Spirit will be pouring out of your life. Listen to this. A passion for evangelism will be pouring out of your life. You can't help but share the gospel with people. You can't help but share Christ with people. You can't help but share the truth of God's word with people if you truly belong to God. And not just a love for people or not a love for people, not just a love for theology. One of the things that I've seen is that people are so intent on theology, 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 and they're not intent on sharing love or that theology with people. There's no compassion. There's no desire to reach the homeless. There's no desire to reach the poor. There's no desire to feed the hungry. There's only a desire for more and more learning, but no, no showing. The true person who truly understands is the person who truly shows the love of Christ. Whether that person is elect or not, we don't know who's elect. All we know is I'm going to show the love of Christ and let God do what he's going to do. Amen. So. We come now to the most controversial doctrine in this acrostic of Tulip, and that is the L in this acrostic. The letter that most people who hear this doctrine refuse to accept and often even run from this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of limited atonement or the doctrine of actual atonement or the doctrine of uh, we'll get to a few synonyms or antonyms, whatever they are in just a few moments. But I want to share with you where this began with me. I remember I was driving home from work with my brother and he asked me the question as we were talking about different spiritual matters. He says, do you think that Jesus died for every single person? And I said, yeah, automatic response. Why, why, why would you even ask a question like that? Of course, he died for every single person. But the response that came after from my brother was, then why are there people in hell? And. It stumped me. It stopped me in my tracks. And I said, well, just like what you probably said or are saying in your mind, because people chose to go there. People chose to go to hell. God didn't choose to send people to hell. God wants every single person to be saved. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. And I was going off and I was preaching to him. And because he's respectful, because he loves me as his older brother, and because he remembers the times when I used to beat him up, which he's too big for that now. But thank God I gave him enough. Uh, He stopped there. And then he would ask me other questions that would, again, cause me to go back to this question and say, I don't know. Now, 
I'm reformed now and, and I believe that that I've studied all of these things and not all of them to, to m- m- the greatest desire that I would like to. But if I say that Jesus died for every single person, then I have to ask the question, why is there people in hell? And if I believe that Jesus cried, died for every single person, then I and there are people who are in hell, then I've got to ask them, did Jesus fail to do what he what he set out to do? Is Jesus a failure? These are all pouring through my head. If God is, is in control and and God is the one who 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 cannot fail in anything, then why is there people who are in hell and God wants to save them? He tries to save, but he can't save them. That just doesn't set right with me. Maybe it sets right with you. But I can distinctly remember Jesus praying while I was with him. I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And he says, and I've not lost one of them except one. But that person was meant to be lost so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. I remember Jesus also praying in in verse 24 of John 17 that I desire that they also, you and me, whom you have given me, the ones you've given me, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Again, Jesus is praying to the father that you and I, the ones that he has given him, would be with the father. In John chapter 19, 30, Jesus says that which he set out to accomplish is finished. Now, these are all in my head as as my brother, God bless him, is asking me all of these difficult questions. Let me just stop real quick. I thought I knew it all. If you spoke to me maybe a year and a half ago, I don't think there was a question you could ask me that I didn't think I knew. And then this little freak, my brother, asked me a question that turns my world upside down and makes me say, I don't know anything. I love him. That's the only reason why I could say that to him. I also believe That if I said, well, people choose to go to hell and God had nothing to do with it, then I acknowledge there's something good in man that gives them the ability to choose that, which is good on their own. I deny now that God is sovereign. I deny the depravity of man. I deny the glory of God because God gets no glory in this. We get the glory in it because we're the ones who did it. It was all up to us. And that bothers me even before I'm reformed. It bothered me like, I don't know. God has to get the glory, though. God gets no, no glory in, in virtually every single scenario that I was putting up in my mind. I got the glory. And I wrestled with this for at least six or seven months until I finally, I remember texting him, okay, now I'm reformed. I get it. It makes sense. I just heard a message by so-and-so or R.C. Sproul or whoever. And I said, okay, I'm reformed. And then I remember texting him later, okay, dude, I'm a Calvinist. You, you got me. It's, it, I can't get around it. So this morning, I'd like to discover or share with you what I discovered. There's a million different routes that I can take. Just like last Sunday, I could take a million different routes. I could talk about the will of God, the the different meanings of the... I could go a million different routes, but I'm not going to do that. I want you to get the base of this, just an understanding of it, and then go study it for yourself. And I pray that as you do, God will show you what he showed me. I'm not going to take two Sundays on this. As a matter of fact, for the next two... This is the... We have two weeks left in the doctrines of grace and we're done. I need you to go and study for yourself. I'm going to give you the, 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 the direction. I'm going to give you a little bit of a start, but you need to go and do this for yourself. This morning, I'd like to explain for you atonement. 
I'd like to explain who that atonement was for and what the effect of that atonement was. Who did Christ die for and what was the effect of that atonement? If I asked you, who did Jesus die for? The traditional answer would be for everybody. Christ died for the whole world. And as, as I say, let me say that again so that you're all looking at me. If I asked you, who did Jesus die for? You would all say, because of our tradition, everybody. He died for everybody. The whole world. Every single individual person Christ died for. And many believe that. On the cross, that Jesus paid for the debt of sin for every single person. Without exception and without distinction. Because he loves everybody. Without exception and without ex- distinction. People say Jesus died for everyone and he loves you so much that he wants you to be saved. And all you have to do is accept him into your hearts, walk down the aisle, repeat the prayer and you will be saved. It's on you. All you have to do is respond. And if that is true, then what exactly did Jesus accomplish on the cross when he said it's finished? If it's up to you, then what did he actually accomplish when he said in John 1930, it is finished. God loves you so much. You're so special. He gave his son just for you. And you've heard many evangelists say this so that you could be so moved with emotion. Now play that song and hit it at just the right chord and just the right key so that you can move the people with emotion and they'll come flocking to the front. And they'll all say the prayer. But in this scenario, Jesus then provides a potential salvation, a possible salvation, a maybe, a maybe not salvation, depending on or its potential, because you may or may not be saved, depending on what you do or do not do. Does this make sense? So Christ's death on the cross might save someone if the person then. Accepts him or doesn't accept him. I have a big problem with that. The final decision is therefore up to the sinner, not up to God. But we have seen now we got to take a step back. We have seen that no sinner on his own can make that choice. Have, have we not see, seen the doctrine of total depravity? I can't do it. I'm, I'm depraved. I'm corrupt in my mind, my will, my desires. I can't choose God unless God chooses me. The choice is not up to me. It's up to him. He elects. Have we not passed through this already? We we did not choose him. He chose us. He loved us before we could love him before we may ever made a choice of him. He had already made a choice of us. God is sovereign. And that choice has been made since the foundation of the world. And because God is sovereign, he's in control. This is his story. He decides how it's going to plan out or play out. And it's all to the glory of God. Doesn't that make more biblical sense? So when we come to this doctrine of who did Jesus die for? And we say everybody, then we've got to put our brakes on and say, hold on a second. Because if we believe that he had died for the elect. Then it can't be for everybody. Because we all believe in the doctrine of election. And is everyone elected in an election? Someone's elected. Someone's not elected. So could he have then died for everyone? No. So I'd like to explain with you or explain to you atonement. This doctrine of limited atonement has also been called, I think it's there, 
particular, maybe not. Oh, yeah. Particular redemption. Actual. I love this. Or effectual atonement. What is atonement? I want to begin by saying at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of the doctrines of grace is the substitutionary death or atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is known as atonement. This word atonement was first coined by William Tyndale. Blessed William Tyndale. I'm learning so much about him right now. As he translated the Bible from Greek to English 500 years ago. Atonement is a 500 year old word that means to produce harmony by making amends. The word atonement, if it's broken down further, is at one meant. And this word speaks of making reconciliation. And in the case of Christ, it is referring to the reconciling or reconciliation of God and man through Christ Jesus. It is the work of Christ. It is the life, the sacrificial death that brings peace between God and man because Jesus Christ has paid the price That man owed and has also taken up the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Therefore, God, through Christ, has made peace with us. His own. This is atonement. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 518, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled. You all know about marriages being reconciled, being brought back together. There was an issue between marriages or between a marriage. And it becomes reconciled. It's worked out so that there is peace between these two individuals. Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. We are to talk about what Christ has done in order to bring man back to God or bring man to God. The work of Christ has satisfied the wrath of God on man. And he has reconciled the alienated from God. You and I were alienated from God. And he brought us to God, to the glory of God. As we've stated before, God, listen to this, was under no obligation to redeem anyone and would have been completely justified if he had left us in our sins. He was under no obligation to send his son. He was under no obligation to make an atonement for us. But he chose to. Because of his love and his grace and his mercy. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You and I for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for one good person, for a good person, one might dare die. But this was not the case with you and I. There was nothing good in us, nothing that would cause God to look at us and say, oh, they're so good. They're so loving. They're so I love them so much. As Joel Osteen said that we're the apple of God's eye. No, we're not. Christ is the apple of God's eye. And it's only because of Christ that God says to the son, I'm going to prepare a bride for you. Verse eight of Romans five. But God, we need to give God all the glory for all the times that we see. But God in the in the Bible, every time you see a but God, it's always a positive that has been brought right after a negative and thank God for the but gods in the scriptures because if God would have left us and not brought a but God we would be in a lot of trouble but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us verse 10 says while we were still enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? 
More than that, we also rejoice in God that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It was Jesus who provided this peace between God and man. This is a central theme of the gospel. Let me just say this as you are looking at me. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. God provided a way through his son in which men can be saved from their sins. This is the reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians Paul, uh, uh, one, or 2, 2. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the reason why Paul says he bore on himself our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and be and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed all lines of theology of our theology intersect on the death of Jesus Christ this was the point of the entire old testament it was looking forward to the day in which Christ would come lay down his life and be a sacrifice for many all four gospels they focus much attention on what The last week of Jesus. It's the apex. It's the pinnacle in which Christ would lay down his life and be a substitute for his own on the cross of Calvary. The book of Acts is a declaration of this death. The book of Acts is a declaration of his resurrection. The epistles, they explain the the, the reason for that death. Revelation shows a picture of the redeemed from all ages gathering around the great throne of God and glorifying the lamb who was slain. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the doctrines of grace. And oh, how we should never be exhausted about hearing of the cross. We should never be tired about hearing where the where our, our the burden of our, our sin was rolled away. We should, every time we hear about the, the place where we were redeemed, rejoice. We should say amen. You should not look at me the way you're looking at me right now. You should be rejoicing that God has saved me because of the cross. And your amens, again, as I said yesterday to the men in prison, Philip, would have been nice about a minute ago. I'm screaming my head off. We should all you should never be tired of hearing of the cross. You should never be tired of that moment in which Christ sets you free. If you're tired of it, then I've got to say something's wrong with you. We should. I know we're a reformed church, but we you you can say amen. That's all right. We should always glorify God because of the cross. We should never be ashamed of the cross. We should never be tired of the cross. We should never cease to display crosses in our churches. It is a symbol in which we it is a symbol that displays where our freedom was purchased. The cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin was rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. We don't sing songs like that no more, John. This doctrine of the atonement is at the heart of Reformed theology. It's at the heart of Calvinism. It's at the heart of biblical gospel, the cross. And churches all over America are taking down their crosses because people might be offended. No, let us never be ashamed. And this cross will never go anywhere. It will constantly be the symbol of our freedom. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which Paul said, and I say with Paul, I was the chief of sinners. Luke 19.10 said, the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. The angel Gabriel came and told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is atonement. 
This is what Christ has done. And as we move forward, we must move forward with this important question. But who was that atonement for? Oh, there is a great celebration in the cross. There is a wonderful truth found in the freedom that is in the cross. But who was that act for? The the question could be rephrased. What was the intent or extent, maybe, of the death of Christ? Who was that death extended to? When Jesus made a choice to come and redeem a people for himself, his intention was to come or was his intention to come and save every single person on the face of the of the earth. Listen, if his intention was to come and save every single person on the face of the earth, then you have to struggle with. He failed then. Because not every single person on the face of the earth has been or will be saved. Therefore. If you take that route, then Jesus is a failure and God also did fail and Satan won. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he was triumphant at the cross. The Bible teaches that he was victorious at the cross. The Bible teaches that at the cross, it was finished. What was finished? Questions have to arise. Did Jesus die? And I have them up there. Maybe. Did Jesus die for for people who are already in hell? And who would never come out of hell? Did Jesus die for the people who would reject him? Did Jesus die for the person who's on the street that will curse his name until the day that they, that they die? The Bible teaches that not one drop of his blood was wasted. The Bible teaches that not one drop of the blood of Jesus was shed in vain. The Bible teaches that Jesus did not die for nothing. That on the cross, every person that he intended to die for, he successfully redeemed. And he successfully redeemed all those who will be saved. He was successful. He paid the price. Their ransom was paid in full. And I love, I put this up there. He did not die and therefore make every person save a bull. He died and accomplished their salvation. Therefore, it is actual. It is not possible. It is actual. It is definite. When he died, it was done. For every person that belongs to him, it's not possible. It's actual. It's not maybe. It's definite. He died. And when he died, he paid the price in full. The Bible says, and therefore he was triumphant. He was victorious. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price was paid. and It was not put on layway. And then you would have to and Christ would wait on you to see if you would agree to pay the rest of it. And if you don't want to pay the rest of it, then he'll go to the next person and say, maybe you want to pay the rest of this layway pan. I already put half down. It's up to you to do the rest. No, the Bible says in first Peter 118, knowing you are ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot. The price of redemption that was paid by Christ was paid in full. Never, ever to have you add anything to that in order to be saved. If you have to add something to it, then it's not complete. Even if you say, well, it's, I got to it's up to no. It's Christ work. It was not a price that failed to or was not a price paid that failed to pay for our redemption. It was actually paid. It's not a possible redemption. It was an actual redemption. Jesus did not shed his blood in defeat. 
All for whom Christ has died, he has secured their salvation. Therefore, the intention of the atonement and who was it and who it was extended to was actually to save every single person that he intended to save. Who do we know that is? We don't know who that is. God knows. Every single person he intended to save, he saved. If he meant to save you, you're saved. You will be saved. That's just the way it is. He doesn't make people savable. He saves them. He doesn't offer up a potential, a hypothetical redemption. If only we would believe. If we do that, then we now become co-saviors along with Jesus so that we can finish the deal. And may it never be. Jesus upon that tree completed the transaction between God, the Son, and God, the Father. And in that transaction, Jesus completed the payment. It was paid in full. And again, he triumphants in that payment. Who was it for? As we saw in the previous lesson, it was for the elect of God. Who was who did he die for? For his own, for the elect. And we see over and over again that there is nothing that you can do to earn that salvation. It is by the grace of God, based on the good pleasure, the good will of God, not on man, but on God. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no man may boast. We saw that it was the divine prerogative of God to choose his elect and to pass over the reprobate. This is God's God's prerogative. It's God's decision. God is sovereign. We are not. Romans 9, 15 says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. Or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Not on the man who wills, nor on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God from eternity past chose whom he would give to his son as a love gift, as his bride. It was the son who came, paid the price for what? For his bride. For his bride. And in that action, he did not fail to pay the price in full. For his bride. This was not for the entire world, meaning every single person without distinction. If that was the case, then every single person would be saved because Christ does not fail in anything that he attempts to do. For those of you who are having uh, discussions with people in your work or around your life that are saying, well, what about this? Explain this to them. Did Jesus fail in anything that he tried to do? No. Then you, my friend, there's hope for you. Number three, the effect. And I may be saying these things wrong, but I think you'll get the point. I'd like to take you through one passage in the scripture, in the scriptures, John chapter one, verse number twenty nine. John chapter one, verse number twenty nine. I, and I trust, as, as you guys are turning, I trust that God is bringing the people that need to be here Amen. to hear this message. I trust that the people who are hungry for the truth are going to be here. I trust that the people who are hungry for the true gospel are going to be here. I know that there are people who have even come from other churches that have been hurt, and they come to this church. And I pray that God would restore you here, that when you come, you would hear the true gospel, that you would be grounded in the true gospel. Even if you leave this place, that you would have enough truth grounded in you, that you would go and find another church that's preaching the same gospel. John 129 says the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world 
or the sin of the world. John is referring to now, and I want you to pay attention. He's referring to a system that is rooted in the Old Testament. And here's the question, and I think I have it up there. How can sinful man approach a holy God? Our sin has separated us from God. So how can we approach God? God in the Old Testament provided a means. This is very interesting. Now, listen, this act of approaching God was made possible by God as he institutes sacrifices of innocent animals. And he says, but it is by the blood of an innocent animal as your substitute that sinful man can draw near to God. But it would not be forever. It would just be for a moment. The system of sacrifice continued until the days of Jesus and John the Baptist. Leviticus chapter 16, we saw how the, the first sacrifice, the blood of the first sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And you can look up more about that. And it portrayed the covering of our sins. This sacrifice of an animal was a substitute for our sins. And it was offered up to God on our behalf. Can you see Christ in that? There was also another type of sacrifice. It was called the scapegoat. And once a year, the high priest would lay, he would, his hands would be filled with blood. And he would lay both of those hands on the scapegoat. And it symbolized the sins of the people being transferred to the scapegoat, the innocent scapegoat. And they would send that scapegoat out into the wilderness. He wouldn't be sacrificed. He would be sent away with the blood of the people's sins on him. And the scapegoat would never return. It was to symbolize the father laying his hands on the son, putting the sins of the people on the son and those sins being removed from the people, never to be returned to them again. Christ takes away our sins. The Bible says in Second Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The death of Christ was a real atonement. And listen what it does. It did the effect of it. It took away our sins. This was not an atonement that was dependent on man's response. It was an atonement that was final. It was definite and it was complete on the cross. And just like the scapegoat, as it runs away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. So your sins, as they've been placed on Christ, imputed on Christ, will never be returned to you again. You, can, you don't need to walk into church and say, I'm still a sinner. I've still got it all over me. No, it's been placed on Christ. It's been taken off of you. Your unrighteousness has been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been given to you. Thank God for that. He says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Did he say, behold, the lamb who might take away the sin of the world? Behold, the lamb who potentially could take away the sin of the world. No. Behold, the lamb who, if man will just accept him, open up the door and let him into their heart, he'll take away their sin. No. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, a definite atonement for all whom Christ died. We don't hold on and say, well, I hope one day I'll be clean. No. Your sins, as the Bible says in Psalm 103, have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. He is Christ, the scapegoat, and he has taken away the guilt of the sins of his people. Carry them off, never to be seen again. You should rejoice. There should be a smile on your face that God has taken away. Your... Do you know what you've done? 
I wish that as I'm saying this, a, a, a movie could be played right before your face. You could put one of those little uh, 3D things on and just let's replay all of your sins. And every single one of them, though you remember them, they've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Christ has taken away your guilt, taken away your shame. And you sit there as if nothing has happened. Let us rejoice. I know this is not a, 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 a what is that church called? A, it's not a Pentecostal church. This is not a, 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 a what are the other ones called? Okay, all of that. But you can't say amen. That's okay. He has taken away. Yeah, for free. He's taken away all of these things. You don't need to throw offerings up here. It don't work like that. What's charismatic? That's what I was thinking of. James Montgomery Boyce says this. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Jesus did not come merely to make salvation possible, but actually to save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation possible. He actually turned aside God's wrath for each of his elect people forever. He did not come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually reconciled to God those whom the father had given him. He did not merely come to make atonement for sins possible, but actually to atone for sinners. I cannot. I mean, I thank God. And I tell my brother many times, I thank God for him. Because if it were not, and I know God used him and maybe it would have came, but, but God used him as the medium, as the means to ask me a simple question that sent me in this direction and sent this church, Reformation Bible Church, into this direction. It's the glory of God. As we look into the scriptures, we see the death of Christ. It finished something. Something actually occurred. And if he died for you, he took you by the hand. I just love he grabbed you by the hand and he reconciled you to God. He actually died for you and brought you to God. He said, and I choose you as mine. Bo, I choose you. Come with me. I choose you. Philip, I choose you. I'm taking you. Gino, I'm taking you by the hand. You're mine. I mean, if you just think about it in terms of this doesn't happen for everyone. How many people do you know that are lost on the streets? I was watching something with my wife just the other day on PBS about people that are mentally ill living on Skid Row. And I'm looking at these hundreds and maybe thousands of people and I'm thinking, God, what did what did I do for you to say? But I'm taking you. I'm passing over these, but I'm taking you to look at Tony in the back. Say, Tony, I'm taking you. Tony knows how many friends of his are still lost. And out of all that group, Tony says, Tony, I'm taking you, though. Can you imagine? Like, I lay at night sometimes and I think, like, I know I didn't do anything to deserve it. I know I'm not worthy, but I just don't get it. But God, I thank you because I could still be lost right now. I should. I deserve to still be lost right now. This should heighten your view of God. This should heighten your glory for God and make you say, God, I just love you. When we do worship, it should not make you stand there and say, okay. You should be, as John was saying, you should be on your knees before God. As I'm preaching about the cross, you should be falling down on your face and saying, like the publican, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. 
Jesus said it's that person who walks away justified. The other one who says, I thank God that I'm not on the streets like all these other people. No, it's the person who says, I don't even deserve this. Take a guy like Philip and I'm now I'm preaching the gospel in, to prisoners. As I saw on his Facebook, preaching life to the lifers. Glory be to God. It's finished. Oh, Palmer uh, Robertson says this. So what is the death, the one death of Jesus Christ accomplished? This death has provided a sufficient priestly sacrifice. It's accomplished an effective propitiation by the removal of the wrath of God. It's provided a full redemption by the purchase of his people. It has accomplished a genuine reconciliation by the removal of God's enmity toward all who were in Christ. These accomplishments are not hypothetical possibilities, but actual reality directed specifically toward all those whom Christ has given his purposeful love before the foundation of the world. It is only those who believe that Jesus made that salvation of people possible that present a message to you that hope to pluck the the heart of your emotions and make you feel good so that you can walk down an aisle and droves of them will come. We've been called the cult recently, this church. The reason why we've been called the cult, Loopy, is the person's reasoning was, well, if your church is preaching the gospel, where's all the people? Whereas if the Spirit of God's really moving there, where's all the people? And this person goes to Valley Bible. And I told Philip, so that must make Joel Osteen's church the most biblical church in America. Because you can't get no big, bigger than that. Do we base truth on numbers? If that's the truth, then I suggest you tell to him, tell him, Philip, next time, how many people are entering the wide road? Many. How many are entering the narrow road? Just a few. No, we are not a cult. We're preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. No, we are not a cult. It's by God's grace that we've been saved. And if that makes us a cult, so be it. Christ Jesus, the great high priest, knew exactly who he was dying for. He knew exactly who he was dying for. He knew exactly. Joe, Joe, I'm doing this. You're mine. Isaiah, you're mine. Mary, you're mine. Willie, Elva, you're mine. I'm going to the cross and I've got you on my mind. Gloria, you're mine. He knew your name. He loved you before the foundation of this. And think about this. And the Bible says he set his face like flint. As he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's, he gets his hard like, let's go. Harder than, than Rocky staring at Drago. Go for it. Uh, harder than that. Harder than that. Let's, let's go. Let's go. I mean, can you imagine? His, his face was like, I'm going to get mine. And this will be done. His plan would not be thwarted. The enemy could not change his plan. The enemy could not tell him, run. No. J.I. Packer notes the difference between Reformed theology and Arminian theology. He says, one proclaims a God who saves. The other speaks of a God who enables a man to save himself. One speaks of salvation. One, One makes salvation dependent on the work of God. The other on the work of man. And I would add to that in closing... One gives all the glory to God. The other one gives all the credit and the glory to man. 
When you have been saved by God, you become spiritual Israel. And you become a part of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You become a part of that great high priestly sacrifice by Jesus given to you. Now, go over a few. Oh, and let me go over uh, back just a few. Go uh, the other way. When Jesus, when the, in the Old Testament, this sacrifice was offered for who? Was it offered for the Babylonians? Was it offered for the Philistines? The Assyrians? Was it offered for the Egyptians? It was offered for the Israel of God. And that continues into the New Testament. That word world, I want to go here. Go ahead, go over, Tone. Cosmos that you see, because some of you will say, well, it says, it says world. Cosmos that you see, especially in the book of John and all throughout the New Testament, has ten different meanings. And each one have a different meaning depending on their context. Go over one more. The worst thing that you can do, go ahead. The worst thing that you can do is take one word and make it the same meaning everywhere you see it. And I've written down for you up there. And those of you who are asking me to email you notes, I will do that so that you can look at these for yourself and say, so world right there doesn't actually mean everybody. World right here doesn't mean this. This one means the entire universe or creative order, physical earth, world system, humanity minus believers. Then there's one humanity, just the believers on and on and on. So I say that so that. I know many of you who, who read your Bible are probably saying, but it says world here and it says all here. You must look at things in context. And I will say in closing, I could go that route. But you needed to hear what I talked to you about today. That those for whom Christ died, he did not fail to save. And that it was an actual salvation, not a possible. It was an actual one. And it was for those whom the Bible calls the elect. Not for everyone. But for those who belong to God and those of you, um, I know that there are a few of you who've been studying these and been struggling with them. I pray that this was encouraging enough for you to say, OK, that makes sense. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus name. I pray that by your grace, justice was done to this marvelous truth. And I pray that your people would not just take my word for it, but they would go home and study these things for themselves. As I said, there are many different things to learn about this doctrine. And about these doctrines. But I pray that this was the right direction to take for this church. And I know each of the directions would give you glory. And I pray that as they study themselves, they would see just how true each of these these doctrines are. And glorify you because of them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I will say that. As I was studying.